The following message is from Life Source Christian Church MP3 Audio Lounge. More information about Life Source is available at lifesource.org.au. If you have your Bibles, would you open up to Daniel? The book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 1. And uh, this year, I, I, uh, I'm going to pursue a theme on helping you become successful. So uh, we're calling this the year of success. And, uh, and right before I start, can I just help you understand that too often, too many others define success for us. And uh, some of you have had parents define success. And so you're, you're going through life trying to make your parents happy. Others of you have got peer pressure and they've defined success for you. And uh, some of you are trying to keep up with the Joneses, inverted commas. And so the Joneses then define success for us. Can I just say to you that if you really want to be successful, you need to pursue God because his definition of success is the definition that will give you the most satisfying sense of success. And when he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, God's definition of success is true success. And his definition of success is all based in our nearness and closeness to him and his will for our lives. And so what we're going to do this morning is that we're going to be looking at, at Daniel, the book of Daniel, and just the first chapter of Daniel, and having a look at three principles that Daniel put into practice that brought him great success. I don't think of all the heroes of the Bible, there's, there's anyone that stands out like Daniel. Maybe Joseph, he stands out as one of the great heroes of success, but certainly Daniel stands out as a great hero of success. But as Joseph, his life did not start out with everything going perfect. Again, you know, one of the things that we cannot uh, control in life is everything going well for us. Many times things go really poorly for us, but then our success is not determined by circumstance. Our success is determined by our response to circumstance. So let's have a look at what happened to Daniel. So this is how it starts, the book of Daniel. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Daniel was included in this 
uh, choice of young men. So it goes on, and the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and the three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now turn to verse 18. Now at the end of the days when the king had said, that's three years later, at the end of the days when the king had said they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Some of you better know these other three as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of you that have heard my preaching before also better know them as shake the bed, make the bed, and into bed you go. But we won't go there. Okay. Uh, Then the king interviewed them, and among them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them, get hold of this, ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Wow. How awesome is that? There are some principles that I want to share with you from these passages of Scripture in Daniel chapter 1 because there are three principles from this chapter that will lead to success in your life. And these are the principles that Daniel exhibited. So let's talk about principle number one. If you want success, here it is, no bitterness. You've got to get rid of bitterness out of your life. If you want to be successful, you've got to get rid of bitterness because bitterness will make you morose. Bitterness will make you cynical. Bitterness will make you negative. Bitterness will cut you off from God's best for your life. And can I tell you that Daniel had lots of opportunity to become bitter? Just let me give you three, three scenarios that could have made Daniel bitter. First of all, he witnessed the plundering of his city. Now, the setting of this scripture is with Daniel, and most commentators say that Daniel was probably 16 years of age at this time. So here he is in Jerusalem, one of the royal household, a prince in the land, a high noble in the land, enjoying the land of promise. And all of a sudden, King Nebuchadnezzar comes, plunders the land, and Daniel witnessed the plundering of Jerusalem. I, have, have any of you witnessed the plundering of your city? We've got people all over the world right now that are seeing the plundering of their city, Syrians especially. We've just, we're just uh, inviting 10,000 Syrians to come to our land. And uh, we've got people in our church from Syria. We've got people in our church that were born in Aleppo in Syria that is now totally decimated. It's a land that's been destroyed. Daniel witnessed the destruction, the decimation of the beautiful city of Jerusalem. How many of you know that there's a possibility of becoming bitter when you see your homeland decimated? But not only that, second thing that could have created a lot of bitterness in Daniel is what's called the exile. And so We're talking about thousands of people being marched in chains from Israel all the way to Babylon. And Daniel was amongst them. 
chained up, led into captivity, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. How many of you know that that's, 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 that's got cause right there for bitterness? But the biggest one of all, and, and a lot of people don't fully understand this because it's not that clear in the Bible, but the third reason for, for, for Daniel's potential for bitterness was the indignity that was given to the royal household of young men at the time. It seems that most of these young men were made eunuchs. And you say, well, where, where does it say that in the Bible? Well, there's, there's not a scripture that says that Daniel was a eunuch, but we conclude that in all probability they made him a eunuch. You say, why is that? Because, well, first of all, he was put under the tutelage of the chief of eunuchs, this guy called Ashpenaz. And so he's the chief of eunuchs. But not only that, the thing that really seals it for me is that there's a prophecy in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 18. There's a prophecy. And the prophecy states that when the exile were to happen, when the king, and, and, and it was prophesied that the king of Babylon would come and plunder Jerusalem in, in 2 Kings 20, verse eight and 18. And then it prophesies that the young men would be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So I don't know about you, but that's, that's, there's three reasons right there for you to wake up in the morning and be pretty bitter. But what we find is that Daniel did not demonstrate any bitterness at all. When you read his life story, you find no bitterness in Daniel. You find a sweet spirit. And I really believe that the reason for this is that Daniel understood, even as a young man, that bitterness poisons your spirit, that bitterness hinders your potential, that bitterness sabotages relationships, and bitterness blocks success. So how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? We started a new year. How many of you have brought the bitterness from last year into this year? How many of you have decided, you know what, this is a new year. We're going to do a new start. You know, let's, let's get the anger. Let's get that poison out of our spirit. Now, let, let me press pause for a second. Grief is not bitterness. Okay, grief is an emotion that is not a negative, destructive emotion. Grief is allowed. Grief is where you feel the sorrow for the loss of something. We, as human beings, it's allowable for us to feel grief. It's allowable for us to feel sorrow. If a loved one dies, of course you're going to grieve. If you lose something that you value, of course you're going to grieve. But bitterness is something else. Bitterness is unresolved resentment. And unresolved resentment sitting there eating away at you. Unresolved resentment over an indignity, over something that shouldn't have happened. Because life is full of stuff that shouldn't have happened. There's, there's, there's lots of questions in life. My goodness, my goodness. On Tuesday, I'm going to Adelaide to a funeral. This is one of my, my best friends, great pastor in Australia, Danny Gugliamucci, one of my wonderful friends that we've done ministry with for nearly 40 years. 
known Danny for 40 years. And, um, and just last week, his son, a beautiful young man, 39 years of age, a youth pastor, was, uh, was, was at a youth camp, 150 kids at this youth camp in the Adelaide Hills. And, and, uh, and Chris sees a storm coming and uh, runs onto the field to tell the kids, come inside, there's a storm coming. As he runs onto the field, a, a bolt of lightning comes and strikes him, hits him full on, thousands of bolts of electricity goes through his body, he's dead instantly. I, I, I mean, how do you explain that? I can't explain it. I can't stand here and say, I know why that happened. I've got no idea why that happened. I'm certainly not going to say, well, that was the judgment of God. Only the haters say stuff like that. What, what I've noticed in life is this. When you go and visit a hospital, you just don't find the worst people of the city in the hospital. When you go to a funeral parlor, what you don't find is in the coffins lined up is the worst people of the city. What you find is the good, the bad, and the indifferent all have stuff happen to them. That's what happens. Stuff happens in life. And so we can either accept it or become bitter about the stuff that, come, that comes our way. And this is what Daniel could have started. The indignity of it all. I've become a eunuch. The indignity of it all. God's house plundered by the pagans. The indignity of it all. God's treasures being taken out of the house of God and being put into a temple of demon worship. That stuff that can create bitterness in your heart. But Daniel never allowed it. Can I just say to you, you've got a choice. The choice is this. Are you going to let the bitterness of last year continue this year or make a stop and say no bitterness? I'm going to create a no bitterness zone in my heart. No bitterness allowed. No resentment allowed. No unresolved stuff allowed. I'm just going to get sweet and stay sweet so that everyone in my life can taste my sweetness rather than having the sour taste of bitterness. Can I tell you that, that your spirit actually leaves a taste in people's mouths? When you leave someone's presence, you either leave a sweet taste in their mouth or a bitter taste in their mouth. And I determined a long time ago, I want to leave a sweet taste in people's mouths. I want to leave a sweet taste in my wife's mouth. Because let me tell you something, if bitterness is there, the people that taste it the most are the people closest to you. Oh, it's getting awfully quiet in here. Come on. If, if you can't say amen, say ouch, but say something. Okay, let's, let's move on. Let's move on. Second thing, the second principle of success for Daniel, and I love this, not only no bitterness, but no mediocrity. I love this about Daniel. He, he would not settle for mediocrity. For him, excellence was the goal. And, and so when we open up to Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, we find that Daniel had a spirit of excellence. But can I just tell you, the spirit of excellence was not just in Daniel's life 20 years later. It started right here as a 16-year-old. And everybody saw it. And that's why he got picked. Because they saw there's an excellent spirit in this guy. This guy is a quick learner. He's quick to understanding. There's something about him that just rises him above the mediocre. Can I just say to you that if you want to draw success 
into your life. Don't settle for mediocrity. Don't even settle for good. The enemy, someone, I think it was uh, uh, someone, I can't remember who, but said the, the biggest enemy of great is good. Most people settle for good rather than going for great. Most people settle for a good mediocrity than going for excellence. And if you really want to draw success in your life, go for excellence. What do I mean by that? Don't settle for just being a mediocre person. Go for being an excellent person. See, I want to be not just a mediocre husband. I want to be an excellent husband. Matter of fact, if anything ever happens for me, I want the next guy to hate me. Because you just can't compare. If anything happens to me and Anne gets remarried, I want the new guy just to say, hey, how can I compete with John Juliano? <laughs> he was so romantic. He would serenade her with a piano accordion. How can I compete? How can I compete with that? Make a cups of tea in the morning. You know, see, see, this is the thing is that, you know, don't settle for being a mediocre husband when you can be an excellent husband. So, so here's the questions for you men. Are you ready for the? Because you ladies, you're going to love me. Absolutely love me. This is the question that every husband needs to ask. What would make me an excellent husband? What do I need to do to make me an excellent husband? Not just a mediocre husband, but just take me up to that next level of excellence. That's one of the questions I ask myself so that, you know, we, we've been married for 35 years now and it just gets better and better and better. And, and, and the more excellent I am, the better excellent response I get from Anne. And she's just, she's just becoming better and better and better. And so because we're both getting better and better and better, our marriage is getting better and better and better. But this is what we've done. We've put... No bitterness allowed into our marriage. No mediocrity allowed into our marriage. We just want excellence and sweetness. Come on, you've got to make a decision. So, so uh, this, a long time ago, I decided I don't want to be just a mediocre son to my mother. I want to be an excellent son. So she lives in Newcastle. I live in Sydney. How can I be an excellent son as opposed to being a mediocre son? And so I found ways by asking that question. I found ways. And so one of the ways that the, one of the, the responses to that question was, I'm going to phone her every day. <laughs> every day, I'm going to give her a ring, find out how she is. Just ask the questions. We ask the same questions. The conversation, we can almost repeat it word for word. Say, Mum, how, how did you sleep last night? It doesn't matter. The fact is, it's not even the depth of conversation that matters. It's just a phone call. And you know what? Anne and I just went on holidays. We were on a cruise. We were out of radio range and for a few days. And my mum missed those telephone calls. She says, I'm so glad you're home because now I get the telephone calls. <laughs> Do you know what? It doesn't cost me that much. But just the difference between being mediocre and being excellent. Yeah, folks, this is, this is a decision you've got to make. Because what's stopping a lot of people from being excellent is selfishness. And somehow you've got to overcome selfishness to move to excellence. Here we go. Here's another one. 
How excellent a friend are you? How excellent a brother, a sister are you? How excellent a worker are you? Does your boss think that of all my staff, this is the most excellent? Why? Because he's there right at the beginning. He's there at the end. If, if, if anything needs to be done, they're the first to put their hand up. I'll do it. How many of you know that when a boss is looking to promote somebody, he's not going to promote Mr. Mediocre. He's going to promote Mr. Excellent. And, you know, and, and let me tell you something. Whatever you do in secret will be revealed in public. You don't have to make a big deal of what you do. It gets revealed. And this is the amazing thing. Like some people, they, they, just, they just work really, you know, when the boss is coming. Hey, quick, work hard. I get a cousin that just, you know, a little bit crazy. And, uh, and so uh, he's slacking away. And then somebody, he's, he's painting, okay? So, uh, and, and so he's looking for a stick to stir the paint. And so he's looking under everywhere to find a stick to stir the paint because he's painting. So he's got the paint there and he's looking for a stick, but it doesn't look like he's busy. Then the boss, someone says, quick, the boss is coming. And so to look busy and he still couldn't find the stick, he sticks his hand into the tin of paint and starts stirring it with his hand. <laughs> and the boss says, Bruno, you're an idiot. <laughs> Why don't you find a stick to stir the paint? <laughs> And it was like, oh, yeah, I am. An... <laughs> Excellent. When, when promotion comes, it's not the mediocre. You say, oh, yeah, but, you know, in, in my game, the mediocres do because they're the ones that brag the most. They, they just don't stay there. Because as soon as they get promoted and they're able to fill the job, they'll get demoted. And those of excellence will always rise. Just give it time. An excellent spirit will always rise. Number three. What was the first one? If you want to be successful, no bitterness. What was the second one? That's it. No mediocrity. Excellent spirit. And here's the third one. No compromise. No compromise. This story about Daniel, it's just an amazing story because... The king wants to give these guys, these excellent guys, the best education, the best food, and the best food actually is the food that goes against Daniel's conscience. And so the food that I don't exactly know what the food was, all that I know is that Daniel interpreted the food as defiling. And so in verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. So, so you know, we can get into a debate about what this was and what this wasn't. I mean, some commentators say that the wine that was given to these guys was wine that was mixed with blood. That was a delicacy in Babylon at the time, wine mixed with blood. And it was against Jewish law to drink blood. And that's why he saw it as defiling. I, don't, I, I really don't want to speculate because the essence of this is not the food or the drink. It was the defilement. He interpreted as defiling himself. So here's the question. Do you know what would defile you? Have you got a clear understanding of what would bring defilement into your life? Because if you want to be successful in God's eyes, 
then defilement is the very thing that brings failure into your life from God's eyes because God wants you to be holy and pure, not defiled. So what God did in order to bring holiness and purity into our life is that he sent his son to die upon the cross. Now, you, you, I mean, just stop and think about that. The price that God was prepared to pay to remove defilement from your life. Just stop and think about that. We, we were all defiled by sin. And so God says, a price needs to be paid. I'll send my son, my only son, to die upon the cross, to shed his blood, to wash away all the defilements so they can be pure and holy. Wow. So what's the price that was paid to remove your defilement? The blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more precious in the universe, in the cosmos, in all of creation. That was the price that was paid. I, I, if we get a revelation of that, if we stop and just get a revelation of that, I think that that would be one of the greatest motivators to stay undefiled. The price that was paid to bring purity to our lives. So, so one of the biggest battles that the enemy will put before you is the battle of compromise. The battle of compromise, for you to compromise God's holiness and actually bring defilement into your life. Because as soon as you bring defilement into your life, without you realizing, you start to offend God. You say, what God? Absolutely. God is offended by sin. God is offended by defilement. That's why he paid such a high price to bring us purity. Now, what the enemy's biggest attack upon the Christian is to bring defilement into their lives. So one of the enemy's greatest joys is when Christians become defiled. And so what we've got today is new theology. And the new theology says, now that you're saved, nothing defiles you. Can I just tell you that that plays right into the hands of the enemy? When you believe that now that you're saved, nothing defiles you. Can I just make it really clear here? That anything that goes against God's word brings defilement into your life. So, but I'm saved. I'm under grace. Yeah, but you can quickly remove yourself from grace by defiling yourself. This is what Daniel purposed in his heart. Man, there was, there, there was no police to police his sanctity. There was no one overseeing, well, Daniel, now that you're in the land of Babylon, you've still got to keep these laws and that. No, no. It was an internal thing inside of him saying, you know what? I might be in an ungodly land, but I still want to be a godly man. We are confronted by ungodliness in our land, but who's going to rise up to be godly? Those that say no compromise. Okay, let me give you the biggest enemy to compromise. Here it is, one word. It's called rationalization. Everybody say rationalization. What's rationalization? Rationalization is where you make an excuse to do what you know is wrong, but to appease your conscience, you've got an excuse. Rationalization. Well, everybody's doing it. Well, hey, ha, ha, you know, it's, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Well, who's the judge of that? Well, as far as I'm concerned, God is the judge of what's bad and what isn't bad. 
And so, I, you know, I'm not here to please others. I'm here to please God. And so here, here are the three tests to find out if you're compromising or not. Are you ready for the three tests? Here it is. Test number one. What does God's word say? Well, I don't know what God's word says. Well, there lies the problem with so many. They don't know what God's word says because they're not reading God's word. You know, it's like, it's like, come on, are you devouring the word of God? Is it the word of God becoming the lamp unto your path? Is it, is it leading, guiding? Are you devouring? Are you in the word? You know, uh, he said, well, I don't, I'm not much of a reader. Okay, have you got MP3s that have downloaded the word of God playing into your ears? But you've got to get the word into you. I love that, Michael, on the front row, going to get married this year, already taking notes about being an excellent husband. I love that. Ah, an excellent man of God, no compromise. What does God's word say? What does God's word say? And if God's word is clear, don't you rationalize it away. Don't you rationalize, well, this is for everybody else, but I'm different. Deception, right there. Let's call it what it is. It's deception. What does God's word say? You've got to get into God's word on a daily basis. Come on. Here's your challenge. 40-day challenge. Who's ready for a 40-day challenge? Three of you. Come on, let me say it again. Who's ready for a 40-day challenge? Okay. For the next 40 days, starting from the 1st of February, here it is. 10 minutes in the Word. You say, that's too much. Five minutes in the Word. It's too much. Three minutes in the Word. Can you do three? Helen, Helen says, not enough. Okay. But can you start with three? Three minutes in one chapter of the Bible. Do you know? You say, not enough. If you can do two, three, four, five, God bless you. But can we do just one chapter of the Bible for the next 40 days? Who reckons they can? Who reckons they can't? Nobody can. <laughs> Helen says, I, I can't restrict myself to one chapter. God bless Helen. I love Helen. That's why she's a pastor full of success in our church. But for the next 40 days, here's the challenge. One chapter of the Bible for the next 40 days. And what I need from you is this. I want you to find a friend Phone a friend, find a friend, tackle a friend, grab hold of them and say, for the next 40 days, I want you to keep me accountable, to sign off that I've read a chapter of the Bible every day. Okay, some of you are already doing it in church. That's awesome. That's great. Facebook, put it on Facebook and then put the chapter that you've read. Awesome. Okay, what does God's word say? Here's the second test. Are you ready for the second test? What does God's spirit say? As a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is more than your conscience. See, see, even the world has the conscience. Every, everybody's got a conscience. I mean, pre-Christians have got a conscience. But when we get born again, we get more than a conscience. We get God's Spirit that lives within us. And this is why it's so important for us to walk with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. So what does God's Spirit say? See, so we know what God's Word says. Well, what does God's Spirit say? Because sometimes... It's not clear what the Word says, but what does the Holy Spirit says? Do you know, there's, there's nothing in the Bible about smoking marijuana. There's no, I can't find one scripture that says, they shall not smoke marijuana. 
If you're in rationalization, then Genesis does say that God created all the plants of the field and they were good. That's rationalization right there. That's, that's rationalization. There's not, there's not one scripture in the Bible that says they shall not smoke a cigarette. Not one. Not one scripture in the Bible that talks about television or talks about downloading pornography from the internet. There's not one scripture that says thou shalt not download pornography from the internet. So, so it's not as if the Bible has all the answers to our current issues, but how many of you know the Holy Spirit's got all the answers to our current issues? And so what does the Holy Spirit say? Without rationalization, what does the Holy Spirit say? So that's, that's the test. What does God's word say? What does God's spirit say? And here's the third test. Here it is. Are you ready for the third test? What do godly people say? Oh, if you haven't got godly people in your life, you're missing out. Now, I'm not talking about people that just say what you want them to say, my friends. I'm talking about godly people. You say, what's a godly person? A godly person is someone whose whole life matches up. Everything about them matches up. Their their lifestyle, the way that they do life. So, So their business is excellent. Their marriage is excellent. Their morality is excellent. Everything about them matches up. Godly people. I'm not interested in the people, oh, you know, God speaks to them all the time. You know, you've got some people, you know, God told me this and God told me that. God told me this and God told me that. But their whole lives are chaotic. You know, you walk into their house and you can't, you know, it's just a mess everywhere. You know, their, their marriage is a mess. Their kids are a mess. Everything is a mess, but oh, God speaks to them all the time. Can I just say that's not my definition of a godly person? My definition of a godly person is someone, everything matches up. They're hearing from God and they're applying what they're hearing from God and they're putting it into practice and, and it all matches up. It's, there's godliness everywhere. That's the sort of point. So, so what are they saying? What, what are they saying? Well, when you, when you go and cheer about your scenario and ask for their advice, what are they saying? Because I guarantee this, that when God's word, God's spirit... And godly people all say the same thing. And you abide by that. You'll be led into success. No doubt about it. But if you're compromising and defiling yourself, then can I tell you, you're heading for a fall. And I want to stop you from heading for a fall. I want to stop you from hurting yourself. I want to stop you from falling over. Because as your pastor, my greatest desire is that you will reap the successes of God for your life. And too many people are just, are just, well, I'm believing. I'm believing by faith that God's going to bless me. And, and I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe in the free will of man. And you can't remove the two. They work together. God says, yeah, I want to bless you, but there's, there's, there's a road of blessing. And you've got to be on that road of blessing. Because, man, you step out of that road and there's danger off that road. But if you stay on the road, of, there's blessing. There's success that comes your way. So it's what you do, what God does. You match them together and bang, something wonderful happens. That's what Daniel discovered. Daniel discovered that no bitterness, no mediocrity. No compromise led him to great success. 
Let me finish this morning. I just want to finish by simply saying that God is the one who determines how successful our life is, really. Apparently this week, a movie is coming out on Steve Jobs. Did you know about that? So in, in, in the world's eyes, he was successful. But in anybody's eyes that knew him, he wasn't a very nice man. And it was like, how can you have this sorted and that so out of kilter? Well, see, the wrong definition of success. Because for me, success is all about congruity. Everything, everything matches. Everything works out. Now, the way that you do life is successful. The peace that you carry is successful. The way you treat people, the way that you treat your neighbors, the way that you treat your loved ones, the way that you treat your God, that's incredible success. See, see when it all comes to the end, it's, your success is not going to be determined by how many toys you accumulated. If you think that that's success, you have been deceived. Because God is the ultimate arbiter of what is successful. And how are you doing with the storing of treasure in heaven? You know, oh, but I've done this and this and this on planet Earth. Yet that's passing and that's finished. The true treasure that lasts is what you've stored up in heaven. That's eternal. So you might be incredibly rich here, but very poor up there. And the riches here, they're going to get passed on to somebody else. Somebody else is going to enjoy that. And they'll only enjoy it for a season because then it's gone. But whatever is in heaven is forever. So you've got to work out. And I love what David said. He says, I've determined that this year I'm putting more into the kingdom of God. I'm putting more into building treasure up there. Could I just say the beginning of success in God's eyes, the beginning, the first step in success in God's eyes is receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you, if you haven't got that right, then you haven't even started God's road of success. Getting Jesus into your life. Oh, how beautiful is that? Why is that? Because your defilement gets removed. Your sins get removed. All the mistakes that you've made get washed away. That's what Jesus came, to die on the cross to remove your defilement, to take away your sins. When he cried out, it is finished, he said, the door is open for you to be saved. The door is open for you to receive eternal life. And what do you have to do? It's so simple. What you've got to do is, first of all, admit that you've sinned. Admit that you've defiled. Admit that you've rebelled. Admit that you've made mistakes. Admit your sins. Admit that you're a sinner. You can't even start the road of salvation if you don't think you need to be saved. And then what do you need to do once you've admitted? Believe that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. When he died upon the cross, he paid the price. He paid the price that you might be washed and cleaned. And then what else do you have to do? Just Confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and commit to following Him. Come on. If, if, if He died for you, then it's not wrong for Him to expect you to live for Him. And that's what a Christian is. It's not just someone who's done a catechism. It's not just someone that's learned a few theological terms. It's someone who said, my goodness, if He died for me, 
I'm willing to live for him. And so we follow. We follow Jesus. We walk in obedience. We walk in submission to him. We're connected to him. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus becomes number one in our lives. Everything else takes second place. Jesus. And let me tell you something. When you follow Jesus, you follow the road of success. And it's the road that God wants for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Life Source Christian Church MP3 Audio Lounge. We invite you to visit us online at lifesource.org.au to find out more about our church and to also access other free resources.